Grab a cup of tea, put on your headphones if you've got a burning question. We might have an answer, it's the V. Hello and welcome to another episode of the VSPA podcast. My name is Elena and together with Aiken, we're going to host today's episode. Um, today, it is a great pleasure to have Dr. Matej Bas on the podcast. Uh, Matej works as an associate professor at the Department of Work and Organizational Psychology at the UBA and his research is mainly about the role of mood and motivation in creativity and how people come up with creative ideas under difficult circumstances. So he also teaches creativity and innovation in organizations and research methods in psychology at Bilba. Um, so without further ado, let's kind of get into the topic. What made you interested in researching creativity in the first place? Um, well, what I, why not, thank you, first of all, Elena and Aiken for inviting me uh, to do this podcast. Uh, creativity, yeah, it really fascinates me because I think it's one of the hallmarks of human cognitive functioning. So when you look around yourselves in society uh, and in your own home, for instance, you see so many manifestations of people's ability to come up with these novel and uh, useful ideas, where it is smartphones, new treatments for diseases. So this is really something that I really like. It is, uh, yeah, the hallmark of human cognitive functioning. And then discovering what factors can contribute to that is, is very interesting. And what I also like is that you can study this from each discipline within psychology. So for instance, if you're interested in how creativity emerges in social groups, so Aiken, you're at the social psychology. So that is one of the things that is studied there, right? But then creativity is sort of a deep and a variable. But what you can also do is, for instance, study it within organizations, uh, which is also something that I do. Then how does leadership, for instance, within organization uh, fuels uh, the employee creativity or kill the employee creativity? That's also an angle that you can take, right? But also, as we will uh, talk about in this uh, podcast, the neural basis of creativity is something that you can uh, try to uncover. Uh, but also there's this idea that uh, for creativity, you need to be vulnerable to psychopathology. So there's clinical psychology. And how does it develop over time? So some people think that creativity actually declines. So when you're a child, this is where you're most creative. But then actually in schools, you kind of need to conform, stick to the norm, uh, and basically, yeah, your creativity gets killed by the school system, right? So this is more a developmental psychological uh, perspective. So basically, and then you have the measurements. So basically, you can study it from each discipline. And that is really something that I love and also something that I do. Yeah. Wow. And maybe could you like to start from the basics? Tell us what is creativity? Like, how do we, how would you define creativity in the first place? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think that a lot of creativity researchers still struggle with that. So there is sort of a standard definition that we use. So this is sort of the generation of ideas or other outcomes that are both original and useful. So these two dimensions are important. So many people actually say, okay, originality, of course, that is really a, a very crucial 
element of something uh, to, to call something creative. So it needs to be novel, uh, infrequent, rare, right? Out of the ordinary. But at the same time, usually uh, a creative outcome is also something that addresses a particular problem or a particular challenge. So appropriateness or usefulness, uh, feasibility is uh, also another important element of creativity. Um, so this is sort of the standard definition of, uh, of creativity, but then even with this standard definition, there's many conceptual issues, but also more methodological issues, how to measure it, right? It's, it's, it's complicated, but this is at least the standard definition that is, uh, that is being used. And so for the research, uh, does it tell us anything about the creative process? What are the necessary steps and like what's to do if you want to have this creative idea in the first place? Yeah, I think uh, there are many models about this. Um, and one of the things that these models teach us is that there is not a single creative process that you can pinpoint. If you do this, you know, you know, for sure a creative idea pops up. I mean, there are many, many of these uh, processes that you can identify. And this is, I think, one of the important insights that we had in the last uh, decades of research into this. So that also means that you have a big repertoire at your disposal that you can use, right, to be creative. So what you could do is try to indeed think out of the box, more flexible thinking, try to come up with associations between ideas and concepts. That is one way to go. But what you could also do is uh, well, sort of this persistent thinking. So stick with one perspective and try to come up with as many ideas within this sort of relatively narrow way of thinking. Because what we typically see is that the more original ideas come up um, after the more accessible and, and unoriginal ideas have been uh, discarded. Have, have passed your mind basically. So just, you know, persevering, persisting is very important, but sometimes you're stuck and what you can then do is for instance, do something else, distract yourself with uh, an activity like walking, for instance. And sometimes there's these non-conscious processes operating in an incubation period. And then sometimes the idea pops up as a flash of insight. So this is what, what people sometimes experience when they're in the shower or in the bathtub. Perhaps you have experienced this yourself as well. I don't know. Yeah. Plenty. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's good to hear. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's many, many different processes, but I would say that many people think that this insight is typically what they well, would define as a creative process, but I think there are many more. Yeah, so do you think that uh, people can do something to become more creative? Like, is it a skill that you can work on or is it maybe more something that is determined before? Uh, that's a good question about the nature-nurture debate, right? With uh, many of the <laughs> theories and, and the variables in psychology. I guess it's a bit of both. So we do know that there's some uh, predisposition. So there's lots of um, individual factors such as intelligence, but also certain personality factors that contribute to creativity. And because we know that there's a genetic component there, uh, you can also yeah, basically infer that there is uh, some predisposition to be more or less creative. So this is about the individual difference perspective, right? 
But at the same time, we also know that it is heavily influenced by uh, the environment. So this is one way to go. So you can create an environment for yourself in which the chances of a creative idea uh, increases, basically. So for instance, if um, you're constantly distracted for instance, your creative potential is very high because you're very intelligent. For instance, you're high on openness to experience. You have the necessary expertise. But if you're constantly distracted, or for instance, you have a boss that constantly tells you, no, this is wrong. This is what you should do. And you know these are the circumstances that basically kill your potential to become creative. So in this case, the situation sort of kills creativity. So make sure that you have an environment in which your potential can be realized. Uh, and there are many, many, many factors that you can think about. So avoid distractions, for instance, um, get into a happy mood. We'll talk about that later as well, I think. Um, I mean, there's so many um, factors to consider, but but yeah, so this is sort of what I can think about this. But the other thing is, so expertise is another one, eh? expertise. So basically what you do is you have lots of knowledge within your mind and your memory. Uh, you have accumulated and learned that uh, throughout school and throughout the experiences that you have throughout life. And these are the building blocks that you can combine and transform a process to come, to come up with something new, to come up uh, with something useful, right? So building your expertise basically is a good thing to do. And this is also something that we do, right? Also with a podcast like this, uh, just, you know, diversify and broaden your expertise. This is also really something that you can do. So, yeah. Okay, so maybe just to close up this uh, broad introduction, uh, when you specialize in creativity in the workplace, what would be the circumstances to, uh, to build up in an effective workplace to really boost creative processes? So I think here it is very important that um, you have a climate where creativity is really valued, basically. So... Yeah, and this, this has to do with rewarding creativity, for instance, but also saying that creativity is actually something that you would like of your employees. So that also involves a bit of risk-taking and allowing exploration, right? Um, and that is sometimes costly because you don't know whether these creative ideas that emerge within the organization, whether they will pay off, right? Many ideas will end up as failures, I mean, this is just, you know, an inherent uh, thing about being creative uh, in organizations. And um, so allowing for this exploration uh, is very important, I think. So that also means that the leader, the supervisor, plays a crucial role. So uh, setting clear goals for your employees, but also letting them choose how to pursue those goals. So autonomy is there important. Um, encourage them. Uh, also create an environment in which employees share ideas with one another, share perspectives, because this is also something that is important to realize. Creativity often emerges between groups of people that work together, because somebody else can give you a, an important clue, uh, which, which you can, can basically um, really get your idea to a higher stage, make it more creative. 
by insights by other people. So make sure that help seeking so that you dare to ask help uh, of others, but also help giving so that you give help to others is something that's really important. Um, yeah, well, the, these are a couple of, of things that you can uh, think about, but probably, so I have an entire course about this, right, about creativity in organizations, so there are many more factors that I would then welcome students to uh, attend this course, yeah. So sharing our expertise with other people and learning from other people's expertise is also an important point. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely, yeah. Yeah, that's also what you see in science, right? So what you see there typically is that scientists work together and also across different disciplines. This is usually where the most beautiful research is happening, right? And so, but there you need different people working together. You can't do it alone. A little bit of a short break after the introduction of creativity. So let's talk about some fun facts. Um, any interesting or fun facts about creativity that you would like to share with us and our listeners? Maybe something that doesn't come up at first when, you know, we say creativity or something that a lot of people don't know. Well, perhaps uh, three fun facts. Well, I don't know whether they're fun, but, you know, important. <laughs> interesting is also okay. So, you know, there, there, there are a lot of these uh, lay beliefs about creativity. So one of these beliefs is that for creativity, well, you need a bit to be a bit depressed. And so some, some writers actually really embrace this idea. I need to be depressed, otherwise my creativity gets killed. But in my research and what I see in the work by others is that depressive mood, for instance, if anything, it is negatively related to people's capacity for creative thinking, but the, the, the relationships are so small, so you, you, can, you can even conclude that the effect is negligible, so it, it doesn't really matter, so that's, that's one thing. Another thing is that people often think, well, this is also what I just said, right? So creativity emerges in groups. So brainstorming, for instance, would be a good idea to do to basically be more creative. But at the same time, what we see is that if people brainstorm together, that they come up with half the amount of creative ideas than if they would have brainstormed alone by themselves and then afterwards put the ideas of these individuals together. So that is also a strange thing, right? That, that sort of is counter to our intuition. And I mean, there's many, many uh, reasons why this is the case. So one of the reasons is that if people are working in a group together, you have to constantly listen to what other people are saying. So your thought processes are disrupted constantly. And this is a major reason why you see a, less, a, a smaller number of creative ideas emerging within uh, groups that interact with one another. But there are shortcuts around it, right? So uh, electronic brainstorming through a computer, for instance, you can still be inspired by the input by other people, but also you know, uh, not being disrupted by their input. Uh, so, so then you have the best of both worlds. But this is another, yeah, I don't know, would you call this a fun fact? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it does seem a little counterintuitive, especially after we say 
oh, you know, yeah. share ideas and your expertise with other people, but then don't do it when you're brainstorming because that's not okay. Well, organized brainstorming is such a way that you sort of get the disruptive processes uh, under control. Uh, I think that is, uh, that is what you should do. Uh, and then the final thing uh, is, so if you, if you look at these very creative companies such as Google, then these companies typically have a relaxation room within their, within their working environment, right? right? So what you see there is that people can actually literally doze off on a, on a sofa and there's dimmed lights. So it's a very relaxing atmosphere, but actually, a relaxed mood does not lead to more creativity. So it seems to me that this is sort of a waste of money of these, uh, of these companies. So yeah, this yeah. final uh, fun fact, I would say. Just occurred to me when you mentioned this relaxation, I know that some people say that uh, some creative ideas came to them into, in their dreams. Mm -hmm. Is it something that you see in your research that like this is happening or is this maybe just something that just people pick up? So, well, this is not something that I study myself. Uh, it's also quite difficult. So uh, I do know that these people are not alone. There are also these famous uh, fashion designers that sometimes see a particular uh, yeah, fashion drawing within their dreams, right? So it happens. I think it was also Paul McCartney uh, that had some of the melodies emerging in his dream. So it happens. Um, and at the same time, I don't know how rare this is and whether this is more the exception to the rule. I do know it stands out. So I can imagine that people remember it more vividly. So this may be one of the reasons why people think this is where creativity resides within your dreams. So I do think it happens, right? But I'm not sure whether it is as frequent as just sitting down, down behind your desk and thinking hard, then creativity also emerges. Okay, so going back to your research, we should dive into this research about mood and creativity. You already mentioned something before. Uh, so can you tell us a bit more about this piece of research and maybe what are some mechanisms for your findings? Yeah, sure. So this is basically my PhD research that I started with in uh, 2005, so millions of years ago. And um, well, there were lots and lots of inconsistent findings. Uh, so I think this topic has been studied since 1980. Um, and sometimes you see that negative moods increase creativity, sometimes it decreases creativity, sometimes and most often the times there are null effects, so it doesn't influence creativity whatsoever. Positive moods more consistently uh, are associated with increased creativity, but also there there were inconsistent findings. So we kind of thought, okay, we, we need to know more about this to draw more firm conclusions. So what we did is basically we did a meta-analysis where we combined all the uh, empirical research on mood creativity to, to, to be able to draw more robust and firm conclusions. And what we did is came up with the model, theoretical model, to better understand how moods do, uh, would lead to creativity. And I think this is a pretty interesting model and also uh, somehow quite, quite influential. So it's picked up by quite, quite a lot of creativity researchers. I'm, I'm quite happy about that. But basically what we argue there is that moods 
yeah, you, you can distinguish them in positive and negative moods, but this is only one aspect of a mood, right? So if you take, for instance, sadness and happiness and joy and, and anger and, 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 and fear, for instance, anxiety, well, it's easy to see even within these negative moods, uh, being, being sad is different than being angry, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and one way to distinguish moods is to actually uh, map them according to their valence, their etonic tone, so positive versus negative, but also the arousal level. So some moods are more arousing, such as anger, fear, than for instance, sadness. And what we argue in that paper is basically you need some activation, some arousal to actually perform better cognitively. And what we also see is that we have this hedonic tone, positive versus negative. And what we see is that these positive moods that are activating, such as happiness and joy, that they indeed associate with more creativity, but mainly because people are better at associating, thinking flex flexibly. So considering a particular problem from different perspectives, right? And because of that, they can come up with more creative ideas. But what we also see is that when people have a negative mood that is activating, such as fearful moods and angry moods, they also are associated with more creativity, but in a different way. So they become more persistent in their thinking. So they kind of are more narrow in their thinking, but generate more ideas within this narrow path. And ultimately, after some time, also get to the more creative ideas. And this is what we, what we found and discovered in this research which was quite interesting. And yeah, so this was basically my PhD research. Then I abandoned the mood creativity research, sort of, okay, this, this is what I did now. I'm, I'm interested in other research questions, but, but uh, two years ago, I was asked to write a book chapter on mood and creativity research. So I was quite interested. So, okay, where are we at right now? And actually the model Basically, the empirical evidence still supports the model, so I'm quite happy about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you talk about mood, uh, could you maybe tell us something about mood disorders and how they are related with creativity? I also saw that you did some work around that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, in a lot of uh, talks that I give to a more lay audience, I always get the question right. So, you need to be depressed uh, to in order to be creative. And yeah, I was sort of dissatisfied with the current empirical evidence on this topic. So, uh, I decided, okay, let's let's. I want to do it myself, not necessarily because I think I can do it better, well, at least slightly better, perhaps. But you know, it's it's also a way to uh, become an expert on a topic, just doing research on it and then learning yourself along the process. And uh, so basically, I also did a meta-analysis there and also some empirical uh, research. Mm -hmm. And what we saw there is that uh, in the non-clinical populations, uh, you and me, for instance, we see that um, you can measure depressive symptoms as well, right? And what you see there is variation. So some people are very happy, no depressive symptoms at all. Some have mild symptoms, some have quite severe symptoms, um, but they do not classify yet as a major depressive disorder. So there are some additional factors that you need to consider there. Uh, whether it's really problematic for you in your social environment, for instance. So this is where you get into the clinical diagnosis. But when you look at the normal population, you see that these variations in depressive mood 
yeah, are basically unrelated to creativity. So performance on idea generation tasks, but also unrelated to publicly recognized creative achievements. The correlation is minus 0.06. So it's, I think it's less than 1% variance explained. So yeah, I mean, it doesn't do anything at least. Now, when you look at major depressive disorder, uh, this gets a bit more complicated because then you need to have clear control groups. So basically what, what is typically done there is that you have these people that are characterized by major depressive disorder and you compare them with a good control group that is very similar on, uh, on other dimensions, such as gender, age, and, and intelligence, for instance. That, that is already quite difficult. But what we typically see there is, uh, A, there's not much research out there, and B, if anything, uh, the relationship is even uh, a bit more negatively, strongly, strongly negatively. So uh, that makes sense because usually these, uh, 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 when you really have a disorder that is also characterized by uh, a lot of uh, impairments in cognition, and well, creativity is based on these cognitive functions, right? So that, that sort of makes sense. Uh, but still, I mean, there's not that much research out there. Um, okay, major depressive disorder is one thing, but you can also think about hypomania, right? So this has to do with uh, bipolar disorder, where people switch between these uh, depressive episodes and these manic uh, episodes. Now, what we saw there is that hypomania, which is sort of uh, the, the sort of the personality traits that, that are, can be found in the normal population, um, that they are positively related to uh, creative thinking, especially if it was self-reported creativity. So <laughs> it seems to be the case that people, you know, that are a bit more high on mania, yeah, that they also think they are more creative. They also show a bit more creative thinking on more idea generation tasks, but these relationships are weaker. Yeah. So, but that makes sense, right? Earlier, we talked about happiness being associated with more uh, creativity, while mania is more sort of excessive uh, happiness to, 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 to an extent. I mean, there are other factors as well, but yeah, that makes sort of is in line, I would say with the empirical evidence, yeah. Okay, so I guess we can move on to another area of your research. Uh, so if I'm correct, you also studied uh, creativity from this neurological perspective and what is happening in the brain when uh, during this creative process. So could you maybe elaborate a bit about this topic as well? Yeah, sure. So this also had to do with the facts, okay, uh, the neural basis of creativity, and this is fascinating, right? So is there sort of a brain region that, can, that we can pinpoint uh, for creative thinking? And to be honest now, I've, I've been working on this, it, the results are very puzzling and complex. And in part it has to do uh, because the paradigms that you use within brain and cognition research are not really fitting with the paradigms and the tasks that you do in creativity research. So typically, I don't know, did you ever do research in a scanner or in an EEG equipment? Did you ever do that? No. Well, basically, if, you, if, you're, if you ever did an fMRI uh, study, 
you, you're basically within this tube and there's lots of noise going on. It's a noisy environment. And also, yeah, you're very limited in what you can do there, right? So that's one thing. Whereas creativity, even with ID generation tasks, it's about spontaneous thinking uh, that you need to report at one point and, and, and locking that moment where you had something creative occurring in your brain to a brain process is very difficult. So what you, what you typically see is that, that research is, is very difficult there. Um, it's also in its infancy. So what we know is that there's diffuse prefrontal activity involved in creative thinking. But yeah, that's probably also the case for many, many cognitive tasks, right? So that is not really showing that there's something special about creativity. Um, there's also this idea that what you need is a lot of these brain networks cooperating with one another. Uh, there's some empirical evidence for that, but I would say, yeah, we definitely need to do more. Uh, you can also look at it from a different perspective. So are there any neuromodulators that are associated with creativity? Uh, for instance, dopamine is a, such a candidate uh, that you can, uh, can look at. So we came up with a model there, a theoretical model. But so far, the evidence is pretty mixed. So um, I don't know. I, I, I think you should ask this question in five or 10 years time, and hopefully then we get more affirmative uh, answers. But right now, I would say it is definitely work in progress. Yeah. And do you have any hypothesis about what can be revealed, let's say, in those five years? Or like, no idea? If, if anything, uh, it will show you that because creativity is, is building on so many uh, things, um, your expertise, all sorts of cognitive operations, I, 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 I will bet there is no specialized brain area for creativity. That, that is not something that I believe. So if anything, it will have to do with uh, these larger networks, uh, perhaps connecting, working together, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And then perhaps what you see is that for some domains, you see different networks that are important, visual domains, for instance, than for more verbal domains. So perhaps this is the, uh, the way to go to think a bit about this. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think the last piece of research that we came across uh, was your research into mindfulness and creativity, with mindfulness being right now quite popular. So I'm really curious about what did you find and would you recommend pe to people to start mindfulness training to become more creative? <laughs> yeah, so actually this was... Uh... I think uh, a couple of ideas. So one of the students that I supervised during master's thesis was interested in mindfulness. So sort of this popped up together as an idea to further explore. Um, and uh, this sort of got out of hand. So basically this is also how a lot of my research uh, emerges. Um, but indeed it appears that uh, mindfulness is associated with enhanced creativity, but it's also interesting that it sort of depends on uh, the type of mindfulness that you look at. So you have different mindfulness skills um, that are identified. So for instance, 
Um, act with awareness is one of those skills that you are really able to zoom into something with full concentration. And at least from the correlational work, we don't see that that is associated with, well, enhanced creativity. But there are other factors as well. Observation is, is another one. And this is that you are able to, well, in a non-judgmental way, um, witness and observe all the sensations, bodily sensations, but also external sensations and sounds. And well, basically this indeed is associated with more creativity. So also when we um, let people do a short mindfulness meditation session where they are guided through this experience. So basically that bodily experience you go through your body, for instance, and then at one point let go then people well, came up with more original ideas. And again, right, so these are subtle effects. So uh, I would definitely not recommend going 100% for only this. It does, it's a bit silly, but sure it helps. But I also said uh, there's another uh, factor to consider. And that is uh, whether this creativity emerges in a group or not. So for instance, if you're in a group, then it's really important that you pay close attention to what other people are saying. Mm -hmm. And then actually being mindful to, well, the input by others is very important. So basically uh, inspired by uh, um, something that I, well, I don't know what it was called. I, 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 at one point I did sort of a fun exercise and I was inspired by that because I think, hey, this can be turned into a sort of a mindfulness exercise. So we call this the voice mirror. So basically it goes like this. So basically when I'm talking right now, what you could do is actually mirror each single word that I'm, I'm speaking in your head. And it's very weird to do. So perhaps you can do it right now, right? It's, it's very weird to do in the beginning, repeating each word that I'm saying within your mind. But what you probably also <laughs> uh, kind of observe right now, it is very difficult to get distracted at the same time by you know, thoughts and worries, whatever. Okay, perhaps you can quit doing this uh, <laughs> at the moment. But you know, this is basically what we did. So we, we did this in a mindfulness exercise. And then what we saw indeed is that people that did this and then got together as a group, basically came up with more creative ideas together. So uh, here paying close attention to, to each other's ideas could work. Yeah. Just maybe more general question regarding like all the different research about creativity. How do you measure creativity or how do you like operationalize it? Like how do you catch it, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question. I mean, I think that the uh, measurement problems are, uh, are, are bigger than the conceptual problems in, in the sense Mm -hmm. of how to define creativity. I mean, there's so many, many tasks out there. Uh, a lot of creativity researchers, they use idea generation tasks. So you have a particular problem and you have to come up with as many creative ideas about that problem as possible. So for instance, one of the tasks that I've used myself uh, within my research is, okay, how can we improve teaching at the university? Can, come up with as many creative ideas as possible. And then students 
participants in this case came up with ideas. And then as a researcher, you need to code these ideas in terms of how original and how useful they are. And then you get sort of an estimate of somebody's uh, creativity. So indeed in my career, probably I already coded 100,000 ideas in this way, but also come up with as many creative uses for a brick or a paperclip or, you know, tire as possible. This is also something that we do. Um, what you can also do is stay closer to the idea that uh, in order to call something creative, it, it should be publicly recognized by relevant stakeholders. So for instance, within dance, uh, choreographers or dance journalists are better able to judge whether something is creative, novel and useful, appropriate somehow aesthetically appealing than lay people. So sticking close to this idea, uh, you have this measure called the Creative Achievements Questionnaire. And basically people report how many creative achievements that they had uh, that were recognized by other people. And these were also ranked. So were they re uh, recognized by national figures in a newspaper, for instance, or do your peers, your friends consider you to be uh, having uh, creative achievements here in this particular domain, dance or uh, science or um, the arts or a com comedy? I mean, there's many different domains where you can do this. So this is another way. Uh, you also have these association tasks, but uh, really there are so, so many tasks. And sometimes the performance on these tasks do not even correlate uh, with one another. So this is sort of a problem, right? So it also suggests that there's many things going on. Uh, and probably it depends on the domain, uh, for instance. Uh, yeah, so that, that, that also resonates with the idea that creativity in, in, to a large extent is built on expertise. So if you're very, if, if you have much expertise drawing, yeah, of course, if you are asked to draw as many creative drawings on the basis of a set of uh, simple figures, such as triangles, you probably score higher than yeah, if you don't have such expertise, right? Yeah. I have a question about the measures, because I also remember having a similar question in my first year when I followed the working organization course and talked about creativity. So let's say we have a task where I have to come up with as many uses as I can for a knife, a brick, a tire, yeah. whatever it is. Um, when you're coding this for originality and usefulness, what criteria do you use? How is it exactly coded? So my coded scene, so for originality, I, I, I basically use two criteria. So how far removed is it from the original use of the object? For instance, with a brick, yeah, the original use of a brick is building something, right? So if you use that as a musical instrument, it's far removed from the original use of that brick. Now, the other criteria that I use is how infrequent is the idea within the sample? So, and these are usually highly correlated, by the way. But uh, an original idea that is only mentioned by one participant is more infrequent and therefore more original, more rare than an idea that is mentioned by many people within your uh, research sample. So for instance, take the uh, brick uh, ideas. So many people come up with a brick to use it to build a house. So in terms of 
how far removed it is is it it is from the original use well, it's very close it's basically how a brick is used but also a lot of people come up with this idea right so both these criteria it says this idea should receive the lowest creativity score uh, but for instance uh, during my entire career i only had one participant that came up with the idea to use a brick within the supermarket to basically separate the groceries, right? You know, when you go to the checkout counter and then you put the brick, so that, I mean, these are my groceries. Then we have the brick separating the groceries from the one following me behind me. So, uh, okay, this is typically not how the brick is used and also was mentioned by only one participant. So that would be highly original, whether it's useful I don't know whether, well, that's a different matter, but uh, at least it is very original, yeah. So they are compared in the sample. Like how far is it from the other ideas in the sample? Well, the I used the sample to determine the frequency. So how frequent is an idea occurring within a research sample? And when the sample is much larger, I mean, uh, then you can have a better judgment of that. Um, but the other one is more a conceptual estimation evaluation. So how far is this removed from the original use of the brick in this case? And this is, yeah, something that I determined myself more and not, not based on the sample. No. Okay, so we're now moving to the final part of this episode, which is our therapy time. It's therapy time! <laughs> so, Mathis, would you say that creativity is an effective tool in psychotherapy? Uh, yeah, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not an expert. So I, I, quite, I, I think it's quite uh, interesting that many people believe that creativity is sort of related to this vulnerability to psychopathology, but at the same time, creativity is also being used as a therapy. So how, did, how does that uh, match up? with one another, the, the, these, how can these be reconciled? But anyway, so indeed, um, there are lots and lots of art therapies, creative therapies, and when you look at the research, it is problematic in many ways. So these trainings are not standardized, right? So that, that makes it very difficult to compare them. Um, so by and large, people report that they, um, like these therapies and for instance they increase the social bonding with the different clients that have to have to work together or with the client and a the therapist um, it actually may also associate with uh, positive well-being outcomes but really it is very difficult to pinpoint these are the uh, active ingredients that you should follow uh, we don't know that so on the basis of the uh, current empirical work yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, before we close this off, I have one maybe with personal question about your creative ideas. Like, what is what are the most creative ideas that you had in your life? Oh, that's a big question. Um, oh, for the first time, I'm uh, silent, so I can answer all your questions quite easily. But uh, this is a <laughs> difficult one, I think. 
Well, you know, when I think back about the mood creativity research, the realization uh, on the one hand that moods can be, can be distinguished in multiple ways, but at, on the other hand, also realizing that creativity can emerge in different ways and then somehow connecting that together, I think was something uh, that I, but also this happened together with, uh, with other researchers. Yeah, I think was a very clever idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and, and it's also the case that a lot of these um, scientific articles about creativity that I uh, was a co-author on or uh, wrote myself, yeah, there's these, it, it's basically a cum accumulation of many, many moments where you need to be creative. So for instance, a paragraph in the article where you think, ah, if I basically swap this or take this example, then this will allow me to grab the attention of the, the audience, but also make the argument that I need to make to let them believe that this is a good idea, for instance, right? So, yeah, so, so I think there are many, many moments where you are creative as a researcher uh, and this sort of builds up and, and yeah, accumulates into a theory or in an empirical article where the writing was clever. Um, something like that. Okay, thank you. And thank you, Mathis, for joining us for this episode of the VSP podcast. It was really super interesting and also practical uh, to not only learn about creativity, but also other uh, areas that are connected to this field of research. Also, thank you, everyone, for listening this far. Stay tuned for our upcoming episodes on sexology and humor. And feel free to contact us using the Instagram link or the email address in the description below for any suggestions. <laughs> <laughs>